So what is quiet quitting? It's basically this kind of slow withdrawal from the work that you do. So moving from maybe this idea of like, I always have to be hustling, driven, passionate in the work, pouring all this effort into things. It is kind of taking a step back and disengaging from the work. to the growth equation i'm steve magnus joined by my good friend and colleague brad stolberg brad what's going on my man hey steve great to uh great to see you really looking forward to today's conversation on quiet quitting which is uh, a topic that's kind of taken the world by storm over the last couple of weeks at least the world that that we live in um so we'll dive into that but before we dive into that we wanted to Remind you all that in order to keep this podcast completely advertisement-free, it is membership-supported. So how can you support The Growth Equation? You can go over to www.patreon.com backslash The Growth Equation. And for as little as $5 a month, you help us keep this podcast going. And you get all sorts of great, unique, valuable goodies, as Steve likes to say. So free copies of our books that are individually signed, access to a quarterly mastermind group, a monthly book club, a Slack channel, various guides to sustainable performance and resilience, along with all sorts of other neat things. So head over to www.patreon.com dot com backslash the growth equation and become a member of our community there. All right. So let's get going into this week's topic, uh, quiet quitting, which is not only in the podcast. If you enjoyed this, check out our newsletter as well, which will have an article on this subject as well. Um, so what is quiet quitting? It's basically this kind of slow withdrawal from the work that you do so moving from maybe this idea of like i always have to be hustling driven passionate in the work pouring all this this effort into things it is kind of taking a step back and disengaging from the work so it's not actually quitting as the name says and leaving your job it's essentially saying you know what I'm going to get by kind of by the like bare minimum, bare necessities of, at, at my work. And I'm going to stop trying to constantly strive, you know, uh, do extra work, all of those good things. And it's, as Brad uh, pointed out, it's something that has kind of taken the internet by storm as more people have, you know, shared that they're doing, you know, stepping back, stepping away and disengaging. And it's not a new phenomenon, to be clear. This is something that we used, you know, other terms like, you know, disengaging in the past. But what we're going to talk about today is why this phenomenon kind of takes hold. What are the underlying contributors? Why do people go from maybe overly motivated to saying, you know what, I'm going to do enough to get by? And then kind of, you know, what we can do about it. So um, I think that, the the three things that would lead people to, well okay let me step back so first off 
Is quiet quitting really anything different than burnout or what before burnout uh, Gallup polling would have called employee disengagement? And I don't really think so. I think that people have been phoning it in since the beginning of time. And some of this quiet quitting is just um, like the zeitgeist in a way for a lot of large newspapers and magazines and TikTok and Instagram people to, to have some new terminology for something that's as old as time. So anybody that is listening to this podcast that's in their 60s, I'm sure can think of multiple people across multiple jobs who went to work and just kind of phoned it in. And I think that's kind of what quiet quitting is, right? It's, it's people phoning it in and they're not saying, oh, I'm done. I'm going to resign. I'm going to quit. It's much more. I'm just going to do the bare minimum and maybe even a little bit less until my supervisor talks to me and then perhaps I'll quit. So a couple of things here. One, bullshit jobs. This terminology comes from David Graeber, who is uh, the great late, unfortunately passed away earlier, um, I guess not last year, anthropologist who took on a large study of white collar jobs in the knowledge economy and found that over 40% are what he considered bullshit, which means that they provide no value to anyone including the person doing them. So if you were to ask the person doing your job, do you like your job? They'd say no. And if you were to ask the person doing the job, what's the point of your job? They'd say nothing. And that was over 40% of jobs in corporate America. Okay. So if you're in a bullshit job, that's probably one reason why you'd phone it in and, and you quietly quit. What's the point of working so hard if your work literally has no purpose? Another reason is if you're not being treated appropriately or compensated for your work. So when I first talked about this topic on social media, uh, a lot of people said that, well, you know, what about teachers that quietly quit? Like their job has tons of meaning and purpose and it's not fair to the kids. To which I responded, well, maybe another way to think of it is if a teacher is only making thirty-five dollars to $40,000 a year in one of the hardest, as you commenter just said, most important jobs, perhaps the problem isn't that they're phoning it in. Perhaps the problem is that they're severely underpaid and undersupported and underappreciated. So let, let me step in there because, you know, teaching is... My no, no, let me just... I, I well, You're going to step in. I just want to lay out the lands, okay? Yep. So it's bullshit job, it's unfair treatment and compensation, or it's someone is genuinely like a conniving person that is trying to take advantage of their employer where they are treated fairly and they have a meaningful job. So those to me are the, the three, the three layers. And I guess there's a fourth, um, which someone named JP on Twitter pointed out to me, but I thought was really, really wise how he said it, which is sometimes large employers want their employees to treat their job as if it were this sacred craft or practice but then they just treat their employees as if what they're doing is a job. And to me, those are the four big buckets. So we've got, just to summarize, you're doing a bullshit job, so why work hard at it? You feel like you're under-supported, underfunded, and not respected appropriately for the hard work that you're doing, so why give it your all? You're in a job where your boss wants you to treat it like it's a sacred craft, but then they treat you just like a widget. That's no fun. 
or you have a great job and everything is hunky dory and it's the perfect job, but you proverbial person out there. And I don't think there are actually too many in this bucket are kind of, uh, you know, Oh, I'm going to just do the bare minimum possible, even in my great job. I actually don't think anyone does that, but for argument's sake, we should include that because a lot of the old timers on social media are just like, everyone's just soft and conniving, but that's neither here nor there for now. All right. So a couple comments here that, and I'm going to start with teaching because I think this is a great segue. So this is bucket number two, very meaningful job, a fair amount of autonomy, mastery, and belonging, certainly belonging in the right school. I know you're going to say administrators fuck up autonomy, but also getting horribly underpaid in most states. So let's let's start here because I think this gets at a central problem here is that I do think finances matter, obviously. Like finances matter. You want to be paid appropriately. What finances do is they cause you to almost add negative fuel to the fire if you're underpaid. But I think we often over-index on the financial things in these jobs. Um, And because that's the easiest solution often is just to throw money at things instead of fix the actual problem. And if we look at teaching in particular, absolutely underpaid on all that good stuff. But if you look at modern teaching compared to maybe, I don't know, 30 years ago, even 20 years ago, the rates of satisfaction in teaching has have declined precipitately. And it's not like 20 years ago, teachers were getting paid that much, you know, as, as well, comparatively. But what you see is those things that you mentioned there, those key like needs of belonging, mastery, <laughs> autonomy have actually declined so much because of like uh, a, a bunch of societal factors, but administration, you know, um, standardized testing, teaching to the tests, not trusting teachers to teach changes in, in the, uh, in the training of teachers, for example, on how prepared they were in college versus just having a degree or even now not even having a degree. So you look at all those things combined, and I would argue if we look at money versus like these motivational basic psychological needs, well, the motive, well, the money plays a factor. The basic psychological needs are much are a much bigger contributor to burnout or this quiet quitting in, in teaching. And I think that, although I've looked at the data more so in teaching, I think that applies across the board to a degree is that, again, I'm not discounting the finances. I think it's very important. But I think what happens is we often say, okay, we need to pay more, which is true, but then we don't fix underlying issues. And the reason I think you see this as well is, Brad, I know in your own life and coaching practice, you've probably seen this as well, but it's people who are still getting paid very high amounts, but they also have that same kind of lingering feeling of like, oh, I'm just going through the motions here. Like, I can't find the energy where maybe 10 years ago I did. And I think a lot of that has to do with these basic, you know, psychological needs. And the one other thing I'll, I'll say before handing it back is I think also what's changed recently that makes quiet quitting maybe a little bit more prevalent is we've further emphasized, especially in the U.S., 
these ideals of like success and then tying your self-worth to your job and, and that pursuit. So that we often look for our jobs as the thing that is going to fulfill us, you know, fulfill our passions, our every, basically every single aspect and, and provide that self-worth. And the reality is that's just a horrible way to live because, you know, what if, you know, you defined whether you were worthy or not, or your value as a hu human based on if you stepped up to the plate and, and struck out or got a hit every single day. Well, that's kind of what we tell people to, to do in their jobs. So is it any, you know, is it any wonder that many people probably as a coping mechanism, quiet quit, meaning saying, I'm not going to apply this effort which also gives me this coping mechanism where I can say, well, you know, it's okay that I didn't do that well in job because I didn't really try. And you see this with students, you see this with athletes all the time, where if the external pressure or their entire self-worth is tied around something, they often, you know, self-sabotage and give themselves excuse so yeah. that they can actually protect their ego. Yeah, there's so much to unpack here. Uh, so I think that, the last couple of points that you made to me are the most rich for conversation because I think there's so much nuance there when you have somebody that really cares about their work and treats it as a craft or as a, a, a practice towards mastery and how you can try less hard as a way to protect yourself. And, and as you said, it's the the proverbial example is the cool kid that never tried in middle school gym class because they were scared that they might lose the game and then they wouldn't be cool. So let's get to that. I do think I want to settle first for the listeners some of the more simple things. So if you have a bullshit job, then going extra and above and working really hard to do things that have no discernible value in the world makes absolutely no sense. So yeah, if I had a bullshit job, I would quietly quit too. I would do very, very little, as little as possible in my meaningless job. And I would probably search for a new job. Now, presumably there are people in meaningless jobs that are happy to have a meaningless job. And they sit on you know, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, read the New York Times and Wall Street Journal cover to cover every day. But I think most people would get bored of that. So if you're the person in the position of having a bullshit job, I'd probably look for a new job. If you're an employer and you're like, why are all these people quitting? Well, ask yourself, do you have a whole layer of people in your organization whose job it is, is to create the illusion of doing work and do what our good friend Mike Joyner calls corporate kabuki, aka going from meeting to meeting, not really doing anything at all, except appearing like you're important and busy. And if David Graeber is even half right, that's one out of every five knowledge work jobs. So if you are a leader of an organization, get rid of those jobs. They don't do any, like they, they do no purpose. And I know, right? Some leaders of organizations are, well, this is Brad and Steve on their high horse. They write books. They have a team of three people. What do they know? You need redundancy. There's some truth to that, but redundancy ought not be 20 to 40% of your workforce. So I think it's taking a really hard look at that. And then I think we have a big entrepreneur audience. If you're building an organization, you know, it's very, very easy to get sucked into the trap of bullshit jobs once you start scaling from, I don't know, 50 people to 100 and beyond, because you do need some redundancy. But 
you want that redundancy to be as little as possible. So that's the bullshit jobs category. The autonomy, mastery, belonging, I'm right there with you. Like good leaders, good bosses, this is probably the most tried and true psychological principle that we'll ever touch on. It's self-determination theory, DC and Ryan. And I mean, it's got to be one of the most, if not the most cited theories in all of human performance and behavior. You need autonomy, mastery, and belonging. When those things are missing, people suffer. So yes, it's the teacher that also might be inappropriately paid, that has an administrator telling him or her what to do, that quietly quits and gets fed up. Um, I think you see this a ton right now in medicine. So you get docs that are really well compensated. And the problem is not that they're not compensated. The problem is that they went to medical school to learn a sacred practice and a craft and to be scientists. And they have administrators in suits running around telling them how to do their job scheduling bullshit meetings, constantly changing the medical record, so on and so forth. So when doctors burn out, and this is an area that I do have a fair amount of expertise in, I've worked with a lot of organizations and individual docs on this, it is never about having too much work. Never. It is always about the amount of time they have to spend charting, dealing with insurance companies, arguing with administrators that don't have any skin in the game, so on and so forth. Um, So... Yeah. Let, let me just uh, comment on that real quick because I think you're spot on. And I think that one thing that goes across, you know, uh, across domains in this that, that we've seen and, and may contribute to this quiet quitting in those kind of fields is in the last, I don't know, 20, 10 to 20 years, we've seen a very uh, stark rise in what I'll just call the administration class. And you see this in medical like fields, hospitals, you see this in universities, especially you see this in, in, in teaching actually. And it's that kind of bloat of, um, administration and bureaucracy. And I, again, I'm not saying all administrators are bad. You need a certain level, but what we've seen is it explode. And I think in with doctors, just as you said, the burnout is higher. If you talk to college professors who, often should have, you know, this job, especially when you reach tenure, you're just like, oh, this is great. I get to do what I love, teach students. But the administration side, like, pushes many of those to burn burnout as well. You see the same in actual athletic coaching, especially in the, the Olympic sports, where more and more of their time and energy is not spent doing the thing, coaching, but spent administration, documenting, you know, all this other stuff that that didn't used to be the case, but is now because of the rise of kind of this bureaucracy of the administration. Yeah, you're getting to my, my, my I think, burgeoning, like, self-described political stance, which is progressive libertarian. And I say that half jokingly, but I think the best way to run a company is to be a progressive libertarian leader. So support your people, make sure that they're compensated appropriately, that they've got healthcare and all that, and then get out of the way and don't try to overmanage and overengineer things because human behavior is complex. And anytime you have an elite class that's trying to overmanage things, they always mess it up. Um, so yeah, I'm right there with you. And then medicine also, because again, it's an area I know really well, there's all these other small factors. Um, for instance, the rise of evidence-based medicine, which is really good for patients, but for doctors, it took something that once required a lot more intellectual creativity and in some ways made it more algorithmic. 
Um, so there's like a million factors, but I do think, as you said, the biggest one is, um, administrative blow. And that can be in terms of actual administrators, but it can also be in terms of documentation, meeting regulations, uh, so on and so forth. So that's another reason that quiet quitting happens And there. If you're the person that's stuck in that situation, um, I often tell my doctors that like, go ahead and get slapped on the wrist 10 times because do the stuff that actually matters and do no harm and, and, and be ethical to your license. But like, just stop showing up to the dumb meetings and then they're a lot happier. If you're a leader of an organization like that, well, how do you get out of people's way so that they have autonomy and mastery? Um, in, in, in belonging, I think is, is kind of in those, whether you're a teacher or a doctor, I don't think it's belonging that suffers as much as autonomy and mastery right now. All right. So then to quickly address the, the third bucket, which is like the conniver, I just don't think they exist to be honest. I mean, there are some sociopaths out there that maybe like think it's a game and these are people that work like eight jobs, but they don't really do any of them. But I think it's very hard to find someone with a job where they have autonomy, mastery, and belonging. They're fairly compensated, and their whole mindset is, how can I do the least possible? Uh, and if those people exist, they're such a small part of the population that I don't think it makes sense to, to worry about them. So then you get into what to me is the most interesting group, which are people that have good jobs defined by mastery, autonomy, belonging, they care about those jobs because those jobs are geared towards meaningful pursuits. They're compensated appropriately, and yet they still quietly quit. I don't think it's too many people. I think when this happens, it's just burnout, and now we're using a different term. I really think that's all it is. So this is me or Steve, super, super privileged and fortunate to have gotten to a place where we make a living coaching wonderful, interesting people, thinking about these topics, recording podcasts, writing books. There are times when you and I feel like, man, I'm just going to phone it in this week. Why does that happen? It tends to be because there was no boundary between our work and other parts of our life, or we cared too much about our work. So we got on that roller coaster ride of, how many people are reaching out to us that are in the NBA? What's our book sells, uh, sales? How are those doing? And, and you just get fatigued and you want to kind of check it out and then you rest and recover and you, you bounce back. Um, and this gets back to a thread throughout our work on, on human performance and excellence over the last 10 years of our partnership is we wrote a book where it was all about stress plus rest equals growth. Then we wrote a book about the illusion of balance in going all in and how if you're a really driven person, trying to be balanced is never going to work for you and it's okay to go all in. But by going all in, we don't mean it should be the only thing that you think about or do. We mean it's okay to really care about it and have a big part of your and have it be a big part of your life. And perhaps our thinking's maybe even changed and softened even more on this. But I think you got to have parts of your identity that are separate from the thing, even if you're freaking, you know, world champion, Olympian, Michael Jordan level athlete. Because A, there's only a few Michael Jordan level athletes and B, they tend not to be super happy and they tend to go through a lot of these emotional roller coasters. 
And I wouldn't wish it on anyone, right? But now does that mean that I'm telling an Olympian that they should have 19 hobbies and be a great friend and start a family whenever they want and all this? Maybe, but that's pretty hard. But am I saying that they should completely like not even think about starting a family and being a friend and having hobbies? No. So I think like even if you're going to try to be the best in the world, I think it's so helpful to have at least one element of your life that is completely separate from that. So our dear friend, Shalane Flanagan, while she was doing it and running, she like, and and she did make hard decisions about um, family and friendships and all that, but she maintained some really close friendships and she maintained her love of cooking. And she actually combined those two things. One of her closest friends, Elise Kopecki and her wrote three cookbooks. And I've talked to Shalane about this and she shared this publicly. So it's okay to talk about here. Like, the fact that she had those cookbooks and cooking was what allowed her to keep going and running when running got really tough, when she didn't perform as well as she wanted to, because there was this other part of her life. And I think if you only have the one thing, eventually you probably get to a point where you phone it in for a period of time. Yeah, because what it does is it it puts you in a place where um, you're very fragile, where if you have one thing that defines you or that your identity is intertwined with or that you get all of derive almost all of your self-worth from, then performing that thing often goes from like wanting to and a joy to to kind of having to and out of a, a, a place of fear of failure. And that's why if you look at athletes who, let's say, choke or whatever in sport, often if you look underneath what's going on, it's because their self-worth, their sense of self was entirely or mostly wrapped into this sport. And for whatever reason, maybe something went wrong, maybe they screwed something up, and their their kind of brain just defaulted towards survival mode. Where it essentially says, Oh, forget this. I'm checking out, and you're gonna forget how to throw a baseball from, you know, to first base like a you know, a, a second grader or eight year old could do. Why does it do that? Because it's so kind of worried about, you know, this, um, you know, your ego, your sense of self being on the line when you're performing. So I think in a, in a lot of ways, it's the same way there for, well, why do people quit, quiet quit when they're like motivated, they care, all this stuff. It's often that they care. It's almost like they care too deeply, too strongly, which puts the brain in this kind of protective mode where it's like, okay, everything that I, you know, Steve or I, Brad care about or define ourselves is at risk in this moment on this play or in this project or in this book. And when you do that, that's a very precarious place. Now I, I, I'd have to be remiss if I didn't mention that, like there are a few people who could can survive and perform in that area. You mentioned Michael Jordan. You know, he tended to make everything personal about him in terms of, you know, if he heard something in the media or another coach, sometimes he did vent someone critiquing or criticizing him so that he could make it personal and use that as fuel. Very few few people can do that, get away with that and not to some succumb to the pressure. And then on on the flip side of that, as we talked about before and in a number of episodes, like. Jordan couldn't turn it off. Like he still carries that around decades later, which often happens as well. So 
I think this is the most, it probably doesn't as occur as much, but it's to me, it's the most interesting one where it's how do you, you know, successfully kind of, you know, tackle these big projects, but then create just enough space or distance between you and the thing. And I think that's where that Shalane Flanagan example comes in or, you know, um, I, t- I was talking to a good sports psychologist who worked with a, another Olympian who was one of the top in the world and, and uh, for, for a bit. And he said, you know what helped her get over the hump from like struggling with it is taking, taking up a hobby, which happened to be knitting. Right. And it's just like sometimes those small things that, that allow you to a have something else in your life where you're kind of making a little progress on. Right. And then B to take your mind out of the thing can go a very long way. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I do this exercise because I want to make sure I'm not fragile. And it's like, if someone told me I can never write another book again, took away my entire internet presence and said, like, well, would you become a depressed person because of that? And I'd like to think no. And then I ask myself, well, why not? Or what would I do? And the answer is, I've got my family. I've got friends that don't care at all about that. Like I have friends that are completely disconnected from the work that I do. And I'd probably get really into gardening and potentially like try to breed German shepherd dogs. And do I want to write and work until I'm 80? I think so right now because I love this work and I feel really fortunate to be doing it. But I also want to make sure that I have these other things, which is precisely why I have very hard and fast rules about never posting pictures of my family on Instagram, never being like, oh, I hung out with such and such friends. Look how great it is. Buy my book. Because then that becomes a part of work. And not being like, I want to be the most excellent planter of marigolds in the country. Because then that becomes a part of my work. So I think it's having things, and then particularly in this day and age where for a lot of both people that are in creative pursuits and in and, and athletes and to an extent entrepreneurs, like you have a personal brand. So work isn't just my books anymore, right? But you have to have things that are really personal that aren't a part of your personal brand. Yeah, I, th- I think that's an, a, that's entirely true. It's again, that idea of how do I create a little space and distance and I've had that conversation as well with my wife on like, how do I use social media and Instagram and like creating some distance between Steve, the person and <laughs> Steve, the, the like book writer, you know, promoter of his work, et cetera, et cetera. And that's where I think those clear and fast, you know, clear and hard boundaries make a lot well, of sense. Well, for me, Steve, and this is interesting. This is a little behind the scenes. For me, it's simple. For me, the public stuff is look at these really interesting ideas and wrestle with them. And I have enough confidence, maybe overconfidence at times where it's like, look at these great ideas that are going to be valuable to you and wrestle with them, which is very different than look at my great life or my great son or my great marriage or my great dog and like me because of that. And that's, I think, the the trap for, for so many people. And it's not just book writers and athletes, like more and more entrepreneurs, like you have to have a brand to like be able to recruit and build a company. So there it's like, look at my great leadership or look at my great ideas as a leader. That's very different than look at my six pack of apps or whatever it might be. 
Yeah, it's being clear on conveying information. Maybe for the listeners, this will help. If you've noticed recently, my Instagram has transformed into the all book writing conveying of information. If you look at three years ago, it was all running coaching things. And there would be videos of athletes and all that littered throughout it. Why? Because back in that day, my 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 kind of conveying information was like, hey, look, look at our team, look at our athletes having fun. Don't you want to come to the University of Houston? You know, it's like you're you're branding it in a certain way. And I think as long as you're clear on that, uh, that's what matters. And where we often go wrong is we just kind of all let it jumble together. And what it ends up being is, as you said, look at, you know, my six pack. And that's what you kind of be defined as, um, which can lead you to kind of being fragile. Yeah. And then there's, there's one other point that's worth making, I think, which is, um, some people work is just a means to an end and the end is a salary and they want to do their job well, and they want to have really tight boundaries and constraints. And then they want to have a life outside of work and, and they work to live. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. So long as you're in a job where that makes sense. And um, there are plenty of jobs out there like it. Again, I think the problem is when you have a mismatch of a job that is a work to live job, the person in it wants to work to live, but the boss wants them to treat their work as if it's religion. And that's where you get a big disconnect. So I think as an individual, it is really um, important to define with absolutely no judgment on either route. Hey, is work an end in itself? Meaning, is it a source of growth and fulfillment for me? And do I want it to be? Or is work simply a means to an end, which is being able to pay my rent or my mortgage and put food on the table and live the lifestyle I want? And um, I think it's also really important for leaders of companies to realize that both kinds of people exist and you're never going to get all people who want to work as religion. And there are many roles in which work is just a job and that's all it should be. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? It's like, it's really the Protestant work ethic. And we've talked about this in the past that, that turns work into this moral endeavor, but Protestantism is just like one sect of one religion. And you can have a really meaningful, valuable, fulfilling life where you just show up and, and do a good enough job and, and, and work as if it's a job. You just have to find the right job for that. Yep. To me, it, again, some of this comes back to fit. Like, right. no, be, be clear on what you're looking for, what you're getting out of your work or getting out of your hobbies or whatever pursuit it is. And being being clear on, you know, that that overlap. And then I think as well as as you go down these endeavors, especially as you obtain success, is just be clear or like have some sort of space between who you are and, and what you're doing. And sometimes, again, in certain pursuits, there's not a lot of space there, but there needs to be enough to to, you know, make it where you're not fragile and dependent on the thing. Yeah. All right. It's a good place to wrap up. There's two other things I want to add. One's related to the conversation. One isn't, but I think uh, listeners will get a kick out of this and, and find it interesting. So the one that is related to the conversation is I do wonder if a lot of these jobs where it is just a job are getting automatized and done by artificial intelligence or algorithms or robots. And a big part of the reason that we have so many of David Graeber's bullshit jobs 
is because we we can't just have 40% unemployment and we don't seriously entertain something like universal basic income. So we have people show up and create meaningless spreadsheets and work a nine to five doing that when a robot could do it just as well. So I don't have the answer. It's a longer conversation, but I do think it's fascinating that what happens if we get to a point where that you work as a means to an end, those jobs just don't exist because any kind of work that is more um, predictable, remedial, inherently not fulfilling can be done by robots. So then what do you do? Again, you can't have 40% unemployment, but it makes no sense to force people to work bullshit jobs. It's bad for people's mental health. It's bad for the climate. It's bad for everything. Do you give people UBI and tell them to make great art? Do you have an economy where every job is fulfilling? I, again, I think it's worth talking about. Maybe we'll talk about it in a future podcast, but I think it's an interesting thing for the listeners to think about it. It's clear based on my mumbling. I haven't thought this through, um, but I think it's fascinating. Steve, anything on that before I move on to the last kind of bonus topic that'll take a minute? Uh, yeah, I have a lot on that, but I would think I would say is there's probably in the future, I don't know if it's decades or hundreds of years, some model where it is like some sort of universal basic income plus like a reorganizing of society so that people can fa- satisfy their basic needs figure out some way to still feel like they've got some status, et cetera, in the world through a different manner. But I think that's a a big societal undertaking and shit. And I don't know if it's decades, man. I think it could be like 10, 20 years before. I don't think society's ready for it. But again, if Graber's work is right, and I keep citing it because I've worked with enough people in, in, in a past life, I spent time in big organizations like I believe it, man. There are a lot of bullshit jobs and they're just there. Oh, I have no doubt there are. I mean, there's tons, but I don't, I don't, I think it's going to be decades before because it just takes so like before some of these bullshit jobs are eliminated. Yeah. So. Um, and then I do think you need some kind of universal basic income or, or what have you. There's a fascinating theory on the rise of um, EDM, electronic dance music which I'm not like a huge fan of, but um, I'm a fan of thinking through like the, the role of work and art in our life. And it is that all of that came out of the Scandinavian countries because of their like strong social safety net, which is basically for a kid, like universal basic income in some ways that allowed these kids, instead of having to work bullshit jobs to be able to like come up with this great new kind of music and art. Um, so it's just an interesting take on like why so much of the new, the, the truly new cutting edge music has come from Nordic countries. Um, it's interesting. All right. My completely unrelated topic. So I mentioned that at the start, this podcast has no sponsors because um, we, we just, we haven't really come across products that we'd feel comfortable aligning with based on our values of uh, no nonsense, no bullshit stuff for performance and excellence. So a couple weeks ago, I was super tempted to start subscribing to Athletic Greens. And the reason for this is like a lot of thoughtful people who I really respect and trust have told me like they take it, they swear by it, this, that, the other. So I told Steve, I'm like, dude, I don't want to become a skeptic. Like all these smart people are using it. Um, it's NSF certified. So for those that are, are unfamiliar, that's the... Um, 
the Federation for Safe Sport, which means that like it's it's tested as much as a supplement can be that there aren't steroids in there or or anything else that's not supposed to be in there. And um, I told this to Steve. I'm like, maybe I'm being like cynical. I'm gonna have an open mind. And Steve's like, oh, like that's great, but like, are any of the people that you respect that are thoughtful that are using it are any of them registered dietitians or nutritionists? And I said no. So then. I did what one does when you have a modest Twitter platform, which is I went to Twitter and I said, Hey, people of Twitter, I'm really curious. Athletic Greens is like taking the world by storms. Um, I've heard from so many thoughtful people that I respect a lot that, that they love it, but nutritionists and registered dietitians, what do y'all think? And I had tons of responses. Of course, 40% were by people that weren't nutritionists or registered dietitians because that's how Twitter works. But I had at least 30 responses from registered dietitians and nutritionists. And all but one said that Athletic Greens, in their opinion, this isn't mine, is at best the same as a Centrum one-a-day vitamin, which the research shows is an overpriced, even at the one-a-day cheap vitamin insurance policy, because you end up pissing it most out. At worst, Athletic Greens contains proprietary ingredients that we don't know what they are. So then I started thinking, well, if this is what the experts are saying, like, why do I want Like, what's the promise of athletic greens that I want anyways? And it's that I don't eat seven servings of vegetables every day. I just don't. Like, I have a young kid. I've got, as we talked about in this podcast, I care deeply about work. I just don't, I don't, I don't have time to eat seven servings of vegetables. So I... Ask myself why? Well, because who who eats vegetables like that throughout the day? So then I'm like, what if I made my own athletic greens, but in the way that the nutritionist and registered dietitian said, which is real food? So last weekend I went to Trader Joe's and I did this subconsciously, not like conscious. Well, I guess it was consciously. It was in my mind because athletic green. I'm very I'm very fortunate that um, call it fortune, privilege, whatever. Like financially, I can afford to do this. So Athletic Greens comes out to like between $260 and $3 a day. So that's about $21 a week at the the high end. So I'm like, I'm just going to buy $21 worth of produce from Trader Joe's. So I got broccoli, I got spinach, I got kale, I got carrots, I got onion, I got mushrooms. And then I came home and I just put it all into a pot with some vegetable and chicken stock. And I just cooked it all up and all those vegetables, right? Those raw vegetables, because I bought them cheap, they all got like really soft and mushy. And now I have seven servings of vegetables every morning over a little bit of brown rice. I'm a savory food guy, so I love eating this for breakfast. And I'm having like real food athletic greens every morning. So we're not here to sell it to you, but it was really interesting because, and it didn't take long at all. Like I go to Trader Joe's once a week anyways, either me or Caitlin does. And the actual making of the stew was like 20 minutes. You just put all the shit in a pot and let it boil and it's delicious. And I have no doubt in my mind that it's better than any kind of green supplement to actually eat seven kinds of greens every morning. All right, there you go, listeners. There's your non-sponsored advice. Or you could be like our... uh... Our good friend Dan John, who said, "Just go get a go get an omelet and order every single vegetable possible in it." Oh no, that's my that's my long term life goal. But I I can't at this stage of my life justify a fourteen dollar omelet every morning. 
And Dan John means it. You know, I, I, I last time I was out in Utah, I trained with Dan John in his garage. And after his garage, he's like, come on. I'm like, where are we going? He's like, you can't train with me and not go to breakfast. And he took me to his diner. And everyone knows him by name. They say, Dan, how are you? And, you know, he's joking around with everyone. And they won't even take his order. They took my order. I'm like, what are you going to get, Dan? They're like, oh, they know. And they come out with an omelet with every single vegetable in the kitchen. And I do think long term, especially if you move your ass to Asheville, Steve, the dream is to go to the same breakfast place every day like an old man. Don't listen. I hope Dan's not listening. And order the same omelet with all the vegetables. But for now, I'm making the the vegetable, the Trader Joe's periphery vegetable stew. And um, if I ever get so addicted to the idea that this is that healthy, Steve, that I'm like taking my soup on like flights for a five day vacation. I want you to like kick me in the gut <laughs> and remind me that I don't need my, my portable athletic green stew. Um, y'all it, it's okay not to eat seven servings of vegetables every day, but I want to give credence to the other side of it, which was like, I really was, I was terribly under eating vegetables. I have the money to do it. Why not make my own athletic greens? And um, so far it's new, but it's going strong. And I think it'll stick because it's easy and it tastes good. All right. So there you go, listeners. There's the behind the scenes. We hope you enjoyed this podcast on both, you know, quiet quitting and Brad's secret sauce that he'll soon be marketing. I'm just kidding. But thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, Until next time, everybody, take care. Take care.